theyeshiva.net. Let's open up with one detail in the story of Purim, which may seem like a detail, but as we shall see, it, it is really one of its pivotal moments, if not the pivotal moment. It's in chapter 4 of the book of Esther of the Megillah. This is midway in middle of the story. Achashverosh has been a king. He has executed his queen Vashti. He has appointed years later a new queen, Esther. He has uh, given tremendous prominence to his prime minister, Haman. Uh, Haman has plotted successfully a decree and persuaded the king Ahasuerus to embrace it, to choose and designate one day in which every Jew living under his empire would be Khalil exterminated. Man, woman, and child. Chapter 4, Mordechai finds out what happens. Mordechai, who is of course a close relative to Esther the queen, even though nobody knows it, Mordechai, who is one of the great spiritual Jewish leaders at the time, and is also close to the palace, is an advisor to the king as well. Mordechai finds out what happened, and the first thing he does is, he rents his clothes, he tears his clothes, he cries, and he sends a message to the queen, the first lady. And the message, of course, is, go straight into your husband and plead for our people. Esther sends back a message to Mordechai, and the message is, impulsively it makes sense, but rationally it doesn't make sense. Because you have to understand who my husband is. My husband is a type of person, the king is a type of person, that if anybody walks in, into his private chamber without permission, what happens, in Esther's words, the rule is that this person comes out with a head shorter. And Esther says, all the servants of the king know this. All who live in the country of the king know it. A man or a woman who goes into the inner chamber not summoned, it's death sentence. And I have not been summoned for 30 days. This is Esther's argument. We have to appreciate the argument. What does Esther say? I can go in. It'll sound great. 
but he didn't summon me. I haven't been summoned for 30 days. He lost some interest in me. If I come out dead, so what happened? I died, and there's nobody here to deal with the decree. So the decree will also be implemented. So nothing really was gained besides the fact that I was killed, and the Jewish people will regardless be killed. Will be killed anyway because of the edict. So Esther is arguing that we really have to think this thing through, because just to run in and come out dead, nobody gained anything. If we could somehow devise a strategy, a plot, a way of dealing with it, that would be sound, rational, strategically sensible, and will ultimately produce the success we're searching for. This is Esther's argument to Mordechai. Mordechai now responds. What's his response? So it's Esther chapter 4, Perik Dalet Pasuk Yud Gimel, chapter 4, verse 13. Vayoymer Mordechai lahashavel Esther. So Mordechai gives a message to give to Esther, to return, to respond to Esther. And he speaks for two psuk, Pasuk Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Dalet. You see why I say this is the pivotal moment? Because it's on this moment that the whole future story revolves. This is the axis upon which the narrative revolves. This is the moment. Don't imagine in your own soul that you're going to escape into the palace of the king from all of the rest of the Jews. You will find rescue in the palace from all the other Jews. If you indeed remain silent at this moment, salvation, rescue will arrive to the Jewish people from elsewhere. But you and your father's home will be lost. And then Mordechai says, And who knows whether it was not for this moment that you attained the Malchus, that you attained the kingdom. So Esther is now confronted with a dilemma that she must wrestle alone. She has nobody to speak to. She can't speak to her husband about this. And is the Meshuggah, he's the guy we're dealing with. She can't speak to Mordechai about this. I mean, she has been talking to him about this, but his position is clear. Esther is alone. She knows that the fate of the Jewish people hangs in the balance. And she must do what she can do to help and save her brothers and sisters. But is she going to risk her life to do so? Does she go with Mordechai's hastily conceived plan and ignore all the odds against her? And if she dies, and that's not such a big deal because he already killed one queen. I mean, it's not like this guy doesn't kill his wives. He doesn't have that policy. Esther knew she was there because Vashti, who was a real queen, who came from royal blood, who was a great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylonia. Vashti had royal blood in her, in her veins, in her sinews. She was killed. So the likelihood to slain another queen is not that far-fetched. And of course, the entire rescue plan fades into oblivion. Now, we know the end of the story. We know that Esther closed her eyes and she took a leap. 
But let's not forget that in chapter 4, we don't know the end of the story yet. We're still in the middle of the story. So we could never underestimate the intense drama of the moment. Esther was facing a death, death life question, not only for her, for her and for the entire plan, for the entire people. Because there was nobody as close to the king as her who can do something to save the Jews. And this is the moment that Esther makes a decision. And she's the only one who makes a real decision throughout the Megillah. I mean, Achashverosh is manipulated by everybody. As the Gemara says in Masech the Megillah, humorously and cynically and ironically, first he kills his wife for the sake of his friend, and then he kills his friend for the sake of his wife. That's basically how you could sum up Haman in one word. Haman remains the great anti-Semite from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. Mordechai remains the consummate tzaddik from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. The one who has to go through the internal tumultuous struggle and really assume responsibility for the whole future is one person. And that is Esther. There's a reason that the name of the Megillah is Megillus Esther. Not Megillus Mordechai, not Megillus Esther Umardechai, not Megillus Mordechai Esther. It's Megillus Esther. There's a reason for it. What happens? What happens after Mordechai gives this response? Esther, we could say, takes a deep breath, perhaps, and she decides to take the plunge. Here is her response. Go assemble all the Jews who are present in Shushan, fast on my behalf, and neither eat or drink for three days, day and night. I and my Medians will also fast in a similar manner. Then I will go to the king contrary to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mar Esther made a decision. And once she made a decision, she takes full responsibility. She is fully present. She now is telling Mordechai what to do. What to do with the Jews, to declare a fast. And she says, I'm going. How did Mordechai persuade Esther, who was in a dilemma, who was uncertain? How did he persuade her to sacrifice her life? At first glance, when you read Mordechai's words, it seems like, He's presenting not one argument, but three arguments. And it's not only at first glance, it's at second and third glance as well. Mordechai is building a case. We would imagine he would build a case and he would offer a strong argument, a stronger argument, and then boom. And then you hit your home run, you give the ultimate punch, the ultimate box to make her go. But let's see Mordechai's argument in more, with more, in more, let's analyze it more new, with, in, with, in, in its nuances. Mordechai's argument consists of three points. First point is, Al-Tadami benav shechli beis That's verse 13, Pasekut Gimel. Don't think you will remain safe in the palace. If the Jews die, you will also die. Number one. Number two, 
Second point is the Jewish people are going to be saved with or without you. But if you remain silent at this moment, you and your father's home will be lost forever. For abandoning your people, for forfeiting this opportunity. His third point, who knows? It's possible God made you a queen for this moment, for this opportunity. Now, The first point is fairly straightforward. Esther's safety is already in jeopardy from the decree. Don't look at yourself and say, this is their problem, it's not my problem. Why should I go into the palace and die, even if it's 50, 60, 70%? I could live. You're not going to live. You're a Jew. And since you're a Jew, so therefore avoiding the responsibility to confront your husband and speak to him will be futile. Somehow, Mardukai says, they will discover you're Jewish. That's what happens with these people. And when they discover you're Jewish, nothing will help. Your fate will also be doomed. You will also be slain as a Jew. In a moment of reckoning, Mardukai says, in a moment of truth, Esther will be targeted as a Jew, even though she's married to the king himself. That's forceful, that's straightforward, that's intense. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew, nobody will escape it. Just as 70 years ago, almost nobody escaped it. The second point he makes is also forceful. The second point is, the Jewish people will be saved regardless. But you and your father's home would be lost forever. You could be silent. And don't think that that will be the end of the story. We will survive regardless. But you won't survive. So it's actually going to be the other way around. The Jews will survive, you won't survive. The consequences of you not being a part in saving the Jewish people will not result in your ultimate success, but in your ultimate defeat. Now Mardukai is about to make a third point. If you were Mardukai, what would you do now? We would expect that Mardukai would now, from, strong, from, weaker, from weaker to stronger, he would now make his ultimate point. What we would say, he would reach his crescendo and give that ultimate, ultimate argument that is very difficult to resist. And yet, when you look at his third point, it seems relatively weak especially compared to the first two points. Let's see how Evan Ezra, Rabbeinu Avram, Evan Ezra, 12th century great Spanish commentator, poet, philosopher, linguist, astrologist, uh, and great commentator on the Tanakh, translates these words, Rabbeinu Avram, Ibn Ezra. Mi idea. Shema lohi gata lemalchus Perhaps this is why you were given this job. You attained the kingdom, the Malchus, in order to save the Jewish people. That's how he understands it. So now, if Esther is not going to be swayed by the previous two arguments, that what? That she's going to die anyway. And that her and her family will be destroyed. What is the last point that Mardachai thinks will finally convince her? Telling her, by the way, this is why you got the job. <laughs> this you have to do in order to make sure you fulfill the job. Imagine you have the spiritual leader of the Jewish people, Mardukai in his day, giving you an instruction to go on a dangerous mission that maybe 50% or 90% you may not come out from it. 
It's a dangerous mission, and if you don't come out from it, nobody will also come out from it, perhaps, and there will be a genocide of your entire people. Can I really, could this person really add motivation to you by saying that, by the way, in addition to saving your people, in addition to saving yourself, in addition to saving your father's family, you will also be fulfilling the task for which you were given this office. You will be doing your job. It's a nice thing to do your job, no question. People always like saying, I'm just doing my job. <laughs> That's an excuse for doing everything wrong in the book. I'm just doing my job. You ever got that one? I'm sorry, I'm just doing my job. Right? We know that calling it your job doesn't make it right. <laughs> Quit your job. Don't do it. Calling it a job doesn't make it right. But no question, if you could do your job, a good person does his or her job. But it almost seems comically insignificant and weak and frail relative to the primary motivation for doing this. Let's say it's not your job. Let's say you didn't get malchus for this. Let's say it is your job. Just doing your job, this is the reason you got this position. You're to ensure that your job was not given to you in vain, rather than the fact that you're saving your people, you're not going to help yourself by not doing it, you won't die. In fact, it's the other way around. But what makes this argument even weaker is, how Mardukai says it. Take a look at his words. Very surprisingly indecisive tone. At this incredibly dramatic, fearful moment, upon which Jewish history hangs in the balance, Mardukai seems to waver. What does he say? Mi In Yiddish. Verveis. Who knows? Maybe it's the reason you became queen. Maybe not. Out of every single girl in the entire Persian Empire, God might have chosen one Jewish girl to become a queen in order to save the Jewish people. But then again, do I know? Do I know why you got this job? Me idea, who knows? Is this how Mordechai hopes to inspire her to take this momentous leap? We don't really need you because the Jews will be saved elsewhere. They'll be saved anyhow. But by the way, if you do it, you'll save yourself and you'll be doing your job because it may be the reason you were given this job. These are not the words you expect to hear from somebody who's telling you to march into the lion's den and to march into the jaw of death. It's not like, give me liberty or give me death. That's not what Mordechai is saying. You would expect him to say it. He says, Mi I don't know. Okay, let's change the subject. One of the strange things about Purim is the name. The Megillah tells the story, Al-Kain Koru Layamimaela Purim Al-Shem Hapur. Hu Agoiro. Pur in the Persian language means Agoiro a lot. So why do we name the holiday? Based on a lot, because Hama, the prime minister of the Persian Empire in the times of Achashverosh, famously cast his lot. He cast his lot to figure out which is the most suitable day for his implementation of a genocide plan, Khalil, against the Jewish people. And he chose by a lot the month and the day, 12 months in the year, in each month 29 or 30 days. 
And ultimately, the lot comes out to the month of Adar, and the day comes out to the 13th of Adar, Yud Gimel Adar, Mechaydash Lechaydash, Miyayim Leyayim, and that becomes the lot, the Goyrel, and that is why we call it Purim. I ask you, this captures the essence and the theme of the holiday? That Haman tried to kill the Jews through a poor? Let's say he wouldn't make a gyro. Let's say he would just, he liked Yud Gimelade because it's his Shviga's birthday. Or he liked Yud Gimelade because it's his Baba's birthday. I don't know why he chose it. Without a lot, would it make any difference? He chose a day, he chose a day. The lot is so significant that even if the lot was significant, why is that the celebration of the holiday? The fact that he cast a lot to figure out the day when the Jewish people were executed, would be executed. That's part of the tragedy, that's part of the, the, the horror of the story, that's not part of the salvation. And yet, this is the name of the Yom Tov, Purim. And not one Pur, it should be called one Pur. It's called Purim, which is actually plural. And it's not called even in Lashon Kodesh, in the holy language, Goyrel, but it's actually given a Persian name. All other Jewish holidays are given a Jewish name. This is a Persian name. In fact, the Megillah always makes sure, Pur, who are Goyrel? Since you don't understand what Pur is, let me tell you what it means. But we don't name it Goyrel. We could have called it Goyrel, it would have been a nice name, no? Goyrel is coming, Yishalachmanus is ready. Sounds strange, because you're used to the name for a few thousand years. But Goyrel works. Goyrelois, it's called Pur. The Zoyar comes, the Tikkun Zoyar says a very interesting comment. That there's another holiday in Judaism that sounds similar to Purim. And that is Yoim HaKippurim. Yoim HaKippurim is of course a biblical name in Chumash. Not in the Ksuvim, not in the Megillah. And of course precedes Purim by many years. Yoim HaKippurim literally comes from the word Kapara, which means atonement. But the Zoyar says no. Yoim HaKippurim, he says Purim and Yoim HaKippurim have the same etymology. In fact, as many commentators on the Zayar and many Kabbalistic and Hasidic texts point out, and other texts as well, in Musr, Machshav, and Ashkafa, that it's actually Yom HaKippurim. Yom Kippur is called Kippurim. It's like Purim. In other words, it's almost like you're comparing Yom Kippur to Purim. When really it's the other way around. Purim comes after Yom Kippur. But Yom HaKippurim is the day that's Kippurim like Purim. It's interesting, because on Yom Kippur... There were also Goyrolois. On Yom Kippur, there was also Pur, Purim. There were also lots. It says in Parshas Achirei Mois, we read it every Yom Kippur, that the Koyin, Belokach Shnei Goyrolois, the Aaron takes two lots, and he makes, he casts a lot, he has two goats, and he has to choose between the two goats, to quote the Pasuk in Achirei Mois. He has to choose between two identical goats, and both of them end up in very different places. I want to quote to you the Pasuk. Aaron HaKoyin, it says, takes two goats, he purchases two goats, he places on the two goats, two lots, so Aaron HaKoyin, and this happened every single year in Yom Kippur by the functioning, serving high priest, he had a box, the box he had two pieces of uh, two lots, Two Gairalas, he lifted them up, he placed one on one goat, one on the other goat, one was on his right, one was on his left. On one it said, Hashem, this goes to God. On one it said, Azazel, this goes to the mountain in the outskirts of Jerusalem called Azazel. 
and the two goats were sent to different places. One goat was offered in the Mishkan, in the sanctuary, in the Beis HaMikdash. And the only offering, it's blood. The only time, the only day of the year that it's blood was brought in where? To the Holy of Holies. Never happened before. Never happened after. Only on Yom Kippur, the blood of this goat was brought into the Kodesh HaKadoshim and sprinkled. Achas right in front of the Ark, right in front of the Aaron. And then sprinkled on the Parochis, on the curtain, and on the Mizbeach, all inside the inner chamber, which was unique. And of course, the other goat was sent La Azazel, and the English language gave this goat a name called Scapegoat. The name Scapegoat, when we say we, they scapegoated him, or they scapegoated her, of course, comes from this scapegoat, because the Torah describes this goat as carrying on itself all of the sins of the entire Jewish people, sent and cast off the second, the second location, which is the Azazel Mountains. How was this decided? Through a girl. Comes the Mishnah in Meseches Yuma, the beginning of the sixth chapter of Yuma, which is a tract dedicated to Yom Kippur. Zog the Mishnah, Yuma, Daf Samach Beis Amiralf, Shnei Siri Yom Kippurim, the two goats of Yom Kippur, Mitzvah on the Mitzvah, Sheyushavin Bemara Ubekoyme Ubedamim. The two goats ought to be identical in the way they look, their countenance, their height, and their value, their money. The two goats have to be... You can't just take two goats and then make a girdle. They have to be identical. And the Gemara says over there, how do you learn it out? Because it says, He should take the two goats. Now, it could have just said, He should take two goats. It could have just said, Seire is plural. Miut Rabbim, the minimum plural, is not one, is two. Goats can't be one, it has to be two. It could have said he should take goats. It doesn't mean three because there's no reason to say three. You say two. Why does the Pasuk have to say Shnei, two? So Chazal learned out from this that the Pasuk was trying to tell us that the two have to be combined in one word. Two. In one word, Shnei. Especially two goats, that the two are two identical goats. They look the same. They have the same height, and they have the same money. They cost the same money. Yes, the Gemara also explains that if he did, they don't do this, they find two goats that are not identical, they still fulfill the mitzvah, it doesn't invalidate it, but this is the way, this is the way to do it. On this, there's a big question. What's the question? The Rishonim, Toysvis, many commentators ask the following question. There's a Gemara, Meseches Sanhedrin, Dafayin Aleph, Amir Aleph, Sanhedrin 71a, look at the next source. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, this is referring to a Ben Sayer Omer. In Parshish Kisetzi, we have the story of a rebellious child who does not listen to his father and his mother. And the whole story of this unique rebellious child who's stealing meat and drinking wine like a glutton. And even though they admonish him and they punish him and they penalize him it doesn't help and you have the unique story in which in this incredible quite strange situation the boy is killed the ben sir is killed if the mother of this child is not identical to his father in their sound 
in their look and in their height, he can't be a Ben Sarah The only way he could be a Ben Sarah is if Mommy and Tati look exactly the same, share exactly the same height, and have exactly the same voice. My timer, why? The Omakra, the Pasuk says, Einenu Shaimeya Bikoileinu. Father and mother come to court and they say he's not listening to our voice. It's one voice. Koilainu, it's our voice. Midikoil biyin and shavin, maravakayma nami bin and shavin, Rabbi Yehuda says. You see here the Torah wants them to be identical. If identical in the voice, identical in everything else also. They have to look the same, they have to have the same height. Keman Ozla, the Tanya ben Sir, Romero, Lahoyavala, Yasid Leo, is Velama Nicht of Roshma Kabul, If so, we have the famous tradition that the story of Ben Sir, Romero, never happened and never will happen. There was never a story like this, will, nor will there ever be a story like this. So, why does the Torah write it? Simply as an opportunity to expound perspectives of Torah and receive a lot of reward for expounding these truths. In other words, this parsha was written to give us educational, pedagogical lessons about education, not to describe a reality that is actually going to take place. This, of course, follows Rabbi Yehuda. Why? We are going to find a father and a mother that have the same voice, that look exactly the same, and share exactly the same height. It's impossible. There's no such a thing. You ever heard a husband and a wife sound the same way? It's hard enough for them to say the same thing. That itself we know is if we're talking about Jewish parents. But forget saying the same thing. Agreeing. We're not talking about agreeing. We're talking about the same voice. The same coil. They sound the same. There's a famous commentary of Rabbi Shemshin Rafal Hirsch on this. And he says that what the Torah is trying to say is that if father and mother don't have the same voice, you can't call the child rebellious. In other words, if there's no harmony in the home, if there's a lack of cohesiveness in the home, if father says one thing and mother says one thing, father feels one way and mother feels completely a different way. So the experience of the children is fragmented. It's broken. And if it's broken, you can't call the child a ben nu. It's only if it's our voice. There's a cohesive voice in the house. Then you can hope that the parents are not to blame, but if not, don't talk about the child, talk about the parents. Parents need help, not the child. No. <laughs> How often do you have this koilenu, the same voice between a father and a mother? So before you label a child a ben sarir you first have to look what the marriage is like. What the quality of the marriage is, what the fabric of the marriage is. So Rabbi Yehuda says, it could never be, never was, never will be. No, what's the question? I don't understand. How do we say that the two goats of Yom Kippur, the mitzvahs, they should be identical in the look, in the height, and in the value. And this is the mitzvah every Yom Kippur they had to search for two goats. You just told me that with people, it can never happen. But by goats, you say yes. Also, they have to be identical. By animals, it could be more this way. What's pshat? What does he mean? He means prob- probably that practically speaking, with people, and when you're growing up with people, you see the differences. 
With animals, they could be more alike. And even if it's not mamish identical, the Gemara in Yerushalmi says there's no stalk of wheat that's similar to another stalk of wheat. There's no two things in this world that are identical. Stalks of wheat, same field, right here, the same seed. No two stalks identical. As we know, no two flakes of snow identical. You could see it quite obviously. No two droplets of rain identical. So the Yerushalmi says we don't expect things to be identical, identical in a complete form. But generally, the animals look like each other. As much as possible, they should look the same. They should be the same height. So the Toys Vishishanim says there's a difference between people and animals. With people, it's not going to happen. With animals, it can happen. Can it happen perfectly? It can't happen perfectly, but it's much more, it's closer proximity. Especially, I would add. We don't have a relationship. If you grow up with these goats, you're very sensitive to the differences. You're going to a store to buy these goats, they look the same. It's not like a father and a mother, you have these relationships, you're so sensitive to subtle, even subtle differences. Comes the Shagasarye. Shagasarye has a commentary on human called Gvura Sari. It says, I don't understand the question. Why are they asking a contradiction from Ben Sarer and to the two goats of Yom Kippur? Hosem bin and Gimel Dvarim v'alei Efsher. Hoches sagi bebeiz Dvarim bedvarim shalatzam aguf ha'efsher. How do you compare? Over there by Ben Sarer and you need a father and mother to share three different properties. Number one, they have to look the same, their face. Number two, they have to have the same height. Number three, they have to have the same voice. By the goats, we never ask for the same voice. We never ask that the meh should be exactly the same. We never asked for that. We asked for two things. Mara and koima. The look and the height. And the domim, value, but that's not in etzim haguf. That's not in the, in the body. That's what the Shagasari says. In the etzim haguf, in the body itself, two things. He says, why are you comparing? I don't see a question. Two things, yeah. Three things not. But Toysvus apparently didn't feel that way. He felt, even for a father and a mother to look exactly the same, and to have exactly the same height, is also not a possibility. The voice exasperates it even more. But that itself is a problem, and that's why he says you can't compare goats to this. And that's why Toysvus has to answer. A whole different answer. What's his answer? His answer is that it doesn't have to be mamish identical, and in animals, it's easier than people. Doesn't have any It's interesting that if you look at Rashi, Rashi over there says, Bemara means, Rashi says Bemara means that they both are either white or black. So, so you see clearly that Rashi is already learning, similar to what Toysva says here, that it's approximate. They're both white, they're both black. Not that Mara means that they look exactly the same, which would, of course, answer also the question. But then you have the Sfasemes. Sfasemes has a fascinating and very creative answer. Take a look at the Sfasemes. Listen to his answer. You could say, 
Shapri Yeshloimar Shein Shavim Mamesh. The two goats have to come out from the same womb. Twins. That's the two goats. If they come out from the same womb, they were created to get twins. They could be identical. You want the father and the mother of Ben Sayyid Ramayda? He says, that's, that's the difference. Two goats could be identical. They're twins. They're identical. They look the same. They're the same height. Sometimes you can't tell the differences. Often you can't tell the differences unless, again, you spend a lot of time and you see the nuances. They, st- they have the same value. New Ben Sayyid say the same thing. He said, to say the same thing, it means Tati and Mami were twins. <laughs> they were both twins, and the twins married each other. The brother and sister who came out together married each other. So one is a male, one is a female. And they look the same, they have the same height, they have the same voice. But if I'm right, this Vasemma says, this is a big Kiddush. This means that the mitzvah is you have to buy twins. You can't just buy two goats. You have to buy twins because that's how they're going to be Shav and Mamash. Huh? Dumb and blood. You're saying dumb and blood. <laughs> Identical in the blood. Not just siblings, not from the same womb, but to umim, twins. The same womb, two siblings don't look alike. But twins, the same seed, if it depends, there's different types of twins. But imagine if it's the same, if it's the same uh, egg that splits. So then it's literally, it's the, it's, it's the, Beitz the same egg. So it's Shav and Mahamish, identical Mahamish. This is the Svasemes' Chiddush. On this Svasemes, they asked a big question. There's something off here. What's off about this? Svasemes says, Why not? Why can't it be by a father and a mother? Ben so you're going to tell me what? A sister marries a brother? No. And if a sister did marry a brother, the child is not a Ben Sayyidah Doesn't say anywhere that a Ben Sayyidah has to come from a kosher marriage. Doesn't say anywhere on the contrary. The Gemara clearly says, Rabbi Yehuda holds, it doesn't have to be a kosher marriage at all. Take a look, Sanhedrin. Same sugya. Rabbi Yehuda, If the mother was not suitable to the father, the child is not a ben sarir Reflect the Gemara, why not? Soif, soif, avu, avu, aninu, ime ime ninu. I don't care if they were not supposed to get married to each other. This is a father and this is a mother. Illegitimate. The boy may be a mamzer. Maybe they weren't allowed to marry each other. She may have been married before and she never got a divorce. She may be his sister. But is she his mother? Yeah. Is he her, his father? Yeah. Is it a problematic marriage? Yes. Is it immoral? Yes. Were they supposed to be married? No. Are they supposed to get divorced? Yes. But it's still a mother and a father. Rashi says, In the story of Ben Sarah the Torah never says she has to have a gather of an Isha. In other words, Hilchis Ishus, it should be a definition of a marriage. A brother and a sister, you might say it's not a gather of Ishus, it's not a marriage that Torah acknowledges. Marriage, by definition, is a religious institution. What does marriage mean? What does it mean you're married? People argue there should be different types, different definitions of marriages. 
really doesn't make sense. Marriage is a religious concept. Two people living together, fine. Why are you calling it a marriage? For tax purposes. The definition of marriage is a transcendent idea. Why, what makes something marriage not marriage? If two people are in the same house for 29 years, are they married? They didn't go through chuppah v'kedushin. They're not married. What makes marriage? Marriage is being together. Why do we even have a name for marriage? Why is there something called marriage? Even when you talk about civil marriages, the definition of marriage is already a concept. It's not a reality. It's a concept that has to be introduced. The Torah says this is marriage. This is not marriage. It's not issues. But it's not issues, Rashi says, but she's still a mother, he's still a father. Ben Sarah doesn't say issues, it says mother and father. Biologically, this is the mother, and biologically, this is the father. No, so why does this Fasemis say, Why can't it be a brother and a sister? Could be a brother and a sister. He says, By goats, yeah, by people, not. Why not? We have a clear Gemara of Yehuda says it's still a Ben Sarah yeah. If it twins, so what's up is Ben Sayyidah If we're talking about twins, the Ramban says, why didn't Yaakov recognize why didn't Yitzchak recognize Yaakov's voice? Yaakov was a twin with Asaph. <laughs> Okay, I don't know. You know the Metzias? Yaakov was a twin of Esau. If you say Hakol Kol Yaakov means the voice is the voice of Yaakov, then you say Yitzhak had a different voice. But then Yitzhak should have been very suspicious. I mean, you hear your child's voice, you know it's the wrong boy. You feel like Esau, but you sound like Yaakov. So Rashi says Hakol Kol Yaakov doesn't mean the voice. What does it mean? means the language, the way of speaking, the verbiage, different, different. The way he's talking. He's like, whoa, Esau went to some seminar on how to communicate. Between hunting and bringing the food, he figured it all out. Different Akal Kal Yaakov. The Ramban also says, why didn't Yaakov recognize Rachel and Leah? Leah's voice. He probably spoke to her in the tent. I mean, a whole night he didn't say a word. He probably said Mazel Tov when they came home, No. Epis. So she said, Mazel tov. How was the wedding? Did you like the food? What do you think about the music? Did you like the flowers? What do you think about the chuppah? You like the hall? You saw the Viennese table my father made? I mean, the epis of conversation, no? What do people talk about after a wedding? Maybe some more personal things. He right away sees us. So you have to say, Leia and Rachel had the same voice. So this Fasemah says, Loi Shaykh, it's not Shaykh. It's hard to understand. What did he mean? Some want to say, which is a very interesting interpretation, we have a klal in Chazal. For a ben seir we have a klal, but let me first give an intro. For a ben seir to be a ben seir you have to be certain this is the father and this is the mother. How are we certain? Today you have DNA tests. Then how are you certain? The answer is, how do you know? You know who the mother is. How does one know who the father is? It's hard to know. The answer is, Generally you assume that a woman is with her husband. 
This is her husband, she's married to him. He's the father. Could it be that he's not the father? It's possible. We don't know. But that's what we assume. We assume, we give people the benefit of the doubt that they're living a moral life. He is her husband. He's the father of the kid. Unless we know a clear situation where something else happened. Of course, there was a first marriage, she didn't wait, whatever it is. But generally, that's what we assume. No, here can you say that? If she's married to her own brother, there's no baal. He's not a legitimate husband. The whole thing is immoral. So perhaps the assumption, the assumption that he is the father is not to be embraced anymore. How do you know? Just like she married this fellow who she's not allowed to marry because it's her brother and a chatwin. Maybe she does other things that she's not supposed to do. And if she does other things that she's not supposed to do, He's saying he's the father, he's not even the father. And once he's not the father, there's no Ben Sarah or Mighty. You have to have a father and a mother. You can't have another man who says, I'm the father, that's not the father. Maybe that's what the Svasemis means. Not a bad answer. Yutoifus. It's not Shaykh. Why? Because then you can't prove he's the father. Once you can't prove he's the father, perhaps it doesn't work. This is a word from the Panam Yafis, the Balafla says this. But the truth is that it's hard to say this. Why? Because the Gemara clearly says that the Yehuda says, we learned, that if the mother is not suitable to the father, he's not a Ben Sarah Ramayr. And the Gemara says, what does it mean not suitable? It doesn't mean that they're not allowed to be together. Because that still works. Because she's the mother and he's the father. The Gemara says not suitable means that they don't have the same sound, the same voice, the same height, the same looks, as Rabbi Huda said otherwise. According to this, the Gemara should have said much simpler. It's not just he's the mother, he's the father, and therefore he's the mother and father, Ben Sarah and Mary. The Gemara says, no, you should be afraid, he's not the father. We don't say that. We don't say that. Besides, you can have two situations where this is not a concern. And that is, let's say there were twins born from non-Jewish parents. They're not Jewish. They both convert to Judaism. Are they allowed to marry each other? Biblically, they're allowed to marry each other? Yeah. A non-Jew converts to Judaism. You're like a new child. Ah, you're my sister. Biologically, you're my sister. Biblically, we can marry each other. Yes, the rabbi said not, because it would have been a very sticky situation. When you're not Jewish, you're not allowed to marry this girl. Suddenly, he became Jewish. Suddenly, he became Jewish. And everything is degraded. You can marry this girl. So the rabbi said, stick away from family. You can also marry your mother, so to speak. Funny situation, right? You convert, your mother converts, marry your mother. You don't say that. The rabbi said not. But Ben Sayyid is a biblical mitzvah. So biblically, can it work? Yeah? And even if you're going to say rabbinically not, what if this couple said, we're not going to follow the rabbinic uh, law, we're going to get married? Still a Ben Sayyid So what can happen? Or if you want a practical situation, if they were both locked up in prison, alone in a chamber, so you could testify that he is the father. There's no question that he is the father. So in this situation, you can't say 
Maybe he's not the father. So you can have a ben sari ramayr. And in the previous situation of twins, you can't even say it was halachically problematic. It wasn't halachically problematic. So why does the Svasemis say loy shayich? It's not. Why is it not shayich? It is shayich. It's a good takasha. No, he says it's not shayich by goats. Yeah, by people not. Probably what the Svasemis means loy shayich is not that it's inconceivable. Loy shayich means it's not practical. Where do you have a brother marrying a sister? It's not a practical thing. Twins noch. And still you should be certain that he's the father. It's not practical. Could it happen? Of course it can happen. But even among non-Jews, it's not common a brother marries a sister. It's one of the Shevet Mitzvahs B'nai Noyach. What about twins that are goats? This is common. Twins that are born goats. It's not a complicated scenario. Does it always happen? No, but it's a normal thing. You could say it's a mitzvah to get two goats that are twins. It's not the end of the world. They have to look the same. They have to have the same height. They have to have the same value. To tell me that Ben Sayyid this happens, twins marry, and therefore it's a common thing. So Rabbi Yudas says it's not going to happen. It's not, it never happened. It never will. Is it possible you're going to come up with a situation? Yeah, you lock them up in a prison and you'll know for sure he's the father. Shine. They converted to Judaism and then they decided to get married. Okay. But this is not something that you could rely on as a regular occurrence. Could be that's what he meant, loy shayich. Not loy shayich, it's not conceivable in reality. Loy shayich, it's not part of practical reality. And if this is the case, the Svasemes' chiddush remains that the goats are twins. The two goats of Yom Kippur came out of the same womb, the same time, or a few minutes apart, from the same mother, and this is what you bring Yom Kippur. And Purim is like Yom Kippur. Exhibit number three. We say every morning, and there's a beautiful song on these words. Ashreinu, you said it this morning, yes? Ashreinu, matoiv chalkeinu. You sang it this morning when you said it. Ashreinu matoiv chalkeinu, umanoyim goyroleinu, umayofi yirushaseinu. Ashreinu, how fortunate we are. Matoiv chalkeinu, how good is our chalik, our part? Manoyim goyroleinu, how pleasant our lot. Mayofi yirushaseinu, how beautiful, how gorgeous our inheritance. What is the difference between chalkeinu, goyroleinu, and yirushaseinu? Did you ever think about this? And are they really all so beautiful? <laughs> is your chalik gewaldic? And is your Yerusha unbelievable? Like your mamish, every one of us has such Yerushas. <laughs> and uh, what about Goyraleinu? What are these three things? On one we say Matoiv. On the other one we say Manoyim. And on the third we say Mayafa. Very different realities. Chalkeinu, Goyraleinu, and Yerusha Seinu. The explanation in all of this has to do with a very fundamental question. And these are not from the small questions. These are from the big questions, as we could say, as if you wish. And that is, it's one of the big questions that's probably spanning millennia, maybe since the first person was created. 
and it continues till today. We all ask this question in one way or another. Some of us ask it often, some of us ask it infrequently. Some of us ask it consciously and some of us ask it unconsciously. And that is, should we try to make sense out of life? The women are laughing and the men don't know what I'm talking about. Should we try... This is what the weather... The weather this is the weather's perspective on my question. Thank you, God. I asked, should we try to make sense out of life? Boom, trach, boom, boom. That's what happens when you try to make sense out of life. I acknowledged it and it calmed down, you see? <laughs> when you don't try to make sense, it starts making sense, maybe. Should we try to make sense out of life? Or to put it in this different ways, should we try to explain God? Should we try to explain the Rebbeinah Shalaylam? Or is it a useless, foolish, and immature endeavor? Depends what age you ask, right? If you're 14, <laughs> if you're 20, if you're 40. Somebody once told me, he says, there's a difference between a 20-year-old, a 40-year-old, and a 60-year-old. When you're 20, you're very self-conscious. Who am I? What do I look like? Who do I fit in with? Who I don't fit in with? Who's my friend? Who's not my friend? Which click? You know What's my future? Shaduchim, yeshiva, you know, what type of guy am I? What type of, you know, you're like very busy. You're busy grooming yourself in one way or another. And you desperately want to fit in based on a certain conception or perception of what you think is good and right and beneficial, etc. He tells me when you're 40 years old, you tell yourself, you know what? Everybody could jump in the lake. I am who I am. You like me, good. And if you don't like me, also good. There's a few bridges you can go to. I'm, this is who I am. I know you look at me funny, this person, but this is who I am. I make peace with it. When you're 60, you realize nobody was ever looking at you. Okay. I'm not 60 yet, so I don't know about that uh, reality. But this is what the Chachem, an old sage, once told me. So some questions, you know, there's a difference of how you look at life. When you're 15, you're 25, you're 35, you're 65. But the truth is that this question in Jewish philosophy and in Machshava and in Ashkafa and in Musser and in Kabbalah and in Teres Hanister, you will find two streams of consciousness among Jewish thinkers. Take, for example, mitzvahs. How do we deal with Torah and mitzvahs? Example number one. Is there a real logic to mitzvahs? Do they really make sense? Like really, really. I know we all hear Pshatim and Torahs and Ramazim and symbols and Midik and Agad Mid and it works this way and that way and a Medrash and a Vart. But do they really make sense? Is there a real logic to them? Tfilin, Mikveh, Mezuzah, Kosher, Matzah, Shoifer, Lulav, Shatnas, Kashrus, whatever it is. 630 mitzvahs. Sviris Hoimer counting 49 days drinking four cups of wine, the Rabbanon, the Iraisa, whatever it is, all the Karbonas, Malachis of Shabbos, fasting game Kippur, not eating cheeseburgers, is there a real logic to them? Or is the logic irrelevant? This is what God wants. This is what your Creator wants. This is what you do. It's His world. If I invite you as a guest into my house, I was discussing Kashras the other day with somebody. 
So he says, I can't accept this. I want to eat what I want to eat. Don't tell me what I, what I should eat. So I said, I'll just give you a simple example. If I invite you as a guest into my house, and I tell you here in the house, we take off our shoes in front by the front door. Anybody has that minhag? Okay. I learned that a little later in life. You take off your shoes. This is how we do in the house. Anyway, there's rules. This is what goes into the refrigerator. This is the food that's taken into the house. This food my kids are allergic to. You can't bring it into the house. And there's certain rules how we live in this house, in this kitchen. And a person comes into the house and starts doing whatever he wants. Completely whatever he wants. Breaks all the rules. Naturally, the host will look at him and say, Listen, if you want to be in this house, this is how you live in this house. You want to do whatever you want, go find yourself another house. God created the world. He created you. He took you into his kitchen. Took you into his dining room. Took you into his living room. He said, Here. Enjoy. But these are the rules in this house. He said, I don't want to keep by it. Okay, go find yourself your own house. Go create yourself from nothing. Go find yourself sources of food. Go create a universe for yourself. There's plenty of them out there. And go find one. Go live there. It's irrelevant. So you understand. I understand today more. I understand today less. It's another perspective. And if you look again at Jewish thinkers, you'll see different perspectives. Rambam, for example wrote a sefer called Meru Nevuchim, The Guide for the Perplexed. In it, he tried to explain rationally the reason for this most of the 630 mitzvahs. Even the mitzvahs we call chukim, which we I define as super-rational laws, the Rambam writes in Hilchis Me'ilah, in Hilchis Tmura, in a few places, the Rambam says that a person should try to understand whatever he's capable of understanding. Even those mitzvahs, Hilchis Mekvoyas, he says it, in a few places in the Mishnah Torah, at the end of Alochis, try to wrap your brain around what you can wrap. Others argued, you could try today, tomorrow, but it's almost irrelevant. Basically, to wrap your brain around God would be like uh, wrapping your tongue around the sun. You ever tried to do that? Take your tongue and wrap it around the sun. I mean, good luck. The same question is, why the world was created. Why was the world created? Why are we here? Why was the world ever created? I once told you I grew up in a community that was a... He's already on the oil of but he was a classic alcoholic. He was a real shikr. His name was Rebzalman the Shikr, we called him. Very intelligent fellow, a talented guy. He became an alcoholic. And he would sit on an island there on Eastern Parkway with a flash mashka, with a bottle of mashka, you knew him. And he would drink. He had very insightful ideas. So he once told me that the opening Rashi is his motto of existence. The Pasuk says in the beginning of Torah, So Rashi says right away, So he says, I'll tell you the meaning. In the beginning God created heaven and earth. There was no need. That's it. He says, that's my philosophy in life. This whole thing was not needed. But here's the big question. When we're dealing with great philosophical questions, what is the right Jewish approach? Why did God create the world? What is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Why are you here? Why is the universe here? Why are we here? What's the answer to this question? Some people don't lose sleep over this question. They don't even think about it. Some people think about it all the time. They don't do anything else. They're just busy figuring out and they say, when I'll figure it out, I'll start living. 
And some of us are stuck somewhere in the middle. But once in a while, a serious person asks this question. Why? Why are we here? Why do we exist? Others think it's a foolish endeavor. Try to explain quantum mechanics to your goldfish. You ever tried? Take the goldfish and say, I'm going to explain to you quantum mechanics. Or even simpler stuff. Take goldfish, start discussing, what's the point? You want to know why God created the world? Again, wrap your, your, wrap your tongue, uh, forget the sun, over your head, over your whole head. And then the sun, and the moon, and the other galaxies, and the universe. It's futile. They say there was a philosophy professor who taught his students for years, and then they, were giving, they, were, they had to give their fi- present their final dissertation. And right before that, there was the final exam after years and years of studying philosophy. And they prepared for weeks and then for months. They expected an exam of 250 questions and they would have to sit for seven, eight hours and respond. The professor gave them a piece of paper and the paper had one question. And the question consisted of one word. And the word was, why? And that was it. Why? That was his question. After five, ten years of studying philosophy on a PhD level, all I want to ask is why. And the students began writing Megillus, Megillus, long, long, long answer. And everybody failed. He failed every student, besides two. One got an A and one got an A+. The guy who got an A wrote one word. Why? Because... But he didn't get an A+. The guy who got an A+, you know what he wrote? Why? Why not? You see, the first one was still stuck in the realm of logic. Why? Because. The second one says, why? Why not? Who even said why is a question? So really he was paraphrasing somebody. The Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Ali was sitting with his colleagues. And they were discussing why God created the world. Ripsad Yagon has a book, Amunas Videus, he says, because he wanted to. <laughs> Rambam says the same thing, because he wanted to. You look in Kabbalah, ooh, that reason will give you reasons. In Zoya, you'll have reasons. In Etzchaim, you'll have reasons. In a lot of works of philosophy, Nister, Amchal will give you full books with reasons. That they quote in a lot of the seminars and the workshops and the essays. So they were discussing it. The Zoya says, begin the Yishtamoidin, he wanted to be known. Darizal says, lahetiv libruov, to give good. Deimakamelech teva hatoiv lahetiv. It's the nature of good to bestow good. Yakirug dulosoi, to be able to recognize, for different reasons. Balatanya said, I don't know, that says in Medrash and Tanchuma, Parshas Nosoi, it's also brought in Medrash, Abba Parshas Nosoi, in Rabba and Tanchuma. Nisava Kadish Baruch Uliyas, Lady Shem created the world because he craved to have a home in the lower elements of reality. So he said, Nisava, Nisava is pshata taiva, or nafa taiva frekmanish kenakashis. Nisava means a taiva, a craving. You don't ask questions, you have a taiva, why? No, it sounds like humor, but it's really a profound idea. It's a taiva. No, so suddenly Hashem has taivas like I have taivas. Of course, what he was trying to say was something profound, and that is, 
the very concept of why is also a creation. Logic is also creation. So you're going to ask why on God when part of creation was the very creation of the concept why? Asking why assumes that logic precedes God. And God now has to fit into logic. So I say, why? Why did you go this today? Why did you travel today? So you tell me, oh, because this and this. Even you say I'm a shugana. Doesn't follow my patterns of logic, but he follows his patterns of logic. He is consistently inconsistent. Or he is consistently illogical, but that's also illogic. Mishugas has a beauty and a logic of its own. Sometimes it makes much more sense than being normal. Certainly more exciting. <laughs> but the very concept of logic is a creation. So I say, why did God create the world? Well, you're assuming that there's a logic that was there before, and now God has to fit into it. So the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe says, Afataivis kinkashanish, the very concept of a kasha doesn't apply. And yet, we don't stop asking the question. We don't stop asking the question, why did Hashem create the world? What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? The Torah itself, which is Hashem's Chachma, discusses the question. And the Torah itself sometimes discusses the fact that there's no, you can't even ask the question. And yet we still ask the question. So what's the answer? Is it because? Or is it why not? Or the very definition of question and answer really doesn't apply here. So the truth is, And this is a very fundamental idea, especially in the teachings of the students of the Baal Shem Tev, throughout the generations, in the world of Nister, especially in the world of Chassidus, the writings of the Balatanya and his colleagues and his successors and so forth, that both perspectives have authenticity to them. Both perspectives are genuinely correct. It's not either or. As Jews, we don't like either or. We want the cake and we want to eat it too. There are many things we understand. And God wanted us to understand what we could understand. And that's why so much of reality is comprehensible to a particular degree. That's why He gave us a mind. The mind is the great gift that the human being has to ask, to question, to inquire, to be inquisitive, to wonder and to try to understand. Where you're standing and in whose presence you're standing. To understand. To understand nature and to try to understand that which is beyond nature. That's why he chose to employ to a particular degree again, to a significant degree, logical systems and patterns in much of the universe, in much of Yiddishkeit and in much of our own psyche. So the study of science in all of its manifestations, and Lahavdal, the study of Torah in all of its branches, is ultimately about understanding systems. Systems of thought, systems of nature, systems of spiritual science and nature. There is the science that we call science, and then there's the spiritual science of the universe. There is the science of the body, and there's the science of the soul. The science of the body we call biology. The science of the soul, we call Torah Sanister. 
It's the science of the soul. The spiritual science of the universe, the spiritual science of the universe, the spiritual physics of the universe, the inner spiritual rhythms of the universe. This is the convergence of halacha, which is the structure of Judaism with the inner rhythm of Judaism, which is called Torah Sanister, Kabbalah, Hasidus, etc. And yet, we must know what we can know. We must know that there is much that we don't know, and not because we're lazy, but because we can't know. And we can appreciate that there's what I know, and there's what I don't know, and then there's something even more. There's what I know that I don't know, and then there's what I don't know that I don't know. And what I don't know that I don't know is far more than what I know, and than what I know that I don't know. Because what I know that I don't know, I still know. <laughs> what I don't know that I don't know, I'm really clueless about. And that's probably 99.9999% of our knowledge. What we don't know that we don't know. Afataiva is kinkashinisht. Afataiva frekmanish kinkashis. On a taiva you don't ask questions. But now allow me to take this question and personalize it. And my question now is, does your life make sense? Not does life make sense, does the universe make sense, do, does do mitzvahs make sense? Does your life make sense? Can you make sense of your own story? Should you even try? If you would meditate on this question, and some of you sitting here meditate on this question often, some of you a little too often, I would say, maybe myself included, do you see a pattern in your life? Can you recognize a rhythm? Are you dancing? Should you be dancing to a particular beat? beat? Can you perceive a plot, a story, a narrative, a storyline? If I would ask you today, does your life have a theme? You know how a novel has a theme? A play has a theme? A book has a theme? Hopefully a company has a theme? Does your life have a theme, a message? Is there a mahalach? Is there like a pattern? When you're watching a play or a film, a documentary, a book. There's a theme. The beginning and the end are very deeply connected. A good speech has a theme. <laughs> Always a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> okay, you have to wait till the end. That's a good point. <laughs> Let's hope we'll wait a long time, right? Yeah. You have to wait till the end. Very good. But sometimes in the middle, you, you're tempted to try to figure it out. You know why? Because you want to know how I should continue. How I should continue the story. Can I answer, can you answer, what is the ultimate mission of your life? Why did your soul come down to this world? What are you meant to accomplish? What are you meant to accomplish? A lot of things, but is there something specific or some specific thing? This is what I'm here for. This is who I am. People ask this question the whole time. I personally get lots of emails and people who come and say, tell me why I'm here. I'm like, if you tell me why I'm here, I'll tell you why you're here. Let's swap. <laughs> A guy calls me the other day. He says he wants to get into dreams. He wants to start deciphering his dreams and he thinks I should also. I told him I have a hard time still figuring myself out during the daytime. When I'm finished with figuring myself out during the day, then I'll go to my dreams. I still don't understand my thoughts during the day. How do we even go about this question? If you would have five minutes with your Rebbeinah Shalaylam over coffee or tea. Some of us used to call it davening. 
But if you can actually talk to God for a few minutes intimately, and you would ask him these questions, what do you think he would answer you? Huh? <laughs> Figure it out yourself or come to this class, yeah? Now, on one level, we have lots of career counselors today. And they say, we will help you figure out what you're good at and what the world needs you for. And if you can marriage your passion and your skill to a need of the world, that's the recipe for success. But remind me your American Express number first. We all would naturally look first at what we're good at. Every person possesses a certain set of skills, affinities, hobbies, uh, tendencies, inclinations, cravings, preconditions. We each come from a particular place, a particular milieu, certain type of family. We each have certain challenges, certain vices, certain natures. Certain things we're good at, certain things we're horrible at. And it seems that this is where we begin to answer these questions. We all know that some of us are better at crunching numbers. Some of us are better at baking pastries. Some of us make a chicken soup or a potato kugel like nobody else. And some of us would not be able to do that. But when it comes to writing computer codes, they're like brilliant. Some of us, when we see computer codes, we want to commit suicide. Others, when they see computer codes, they suddenly come to life. This is the language they live in. Some of us are good at building homes. Some of us are good at giving people advice besides ourselves. Some of us are good or think we're good at giving speeches, practicing medicine, law, sitting in a lab and figuring out DNA, playing football, singing opera, dancing, or whatever else it may be. And we come to great experts and they tell us, here you got to go. There was a guy who came to a rabbi and he said, I need a job. So the rabbi said, what are the choices? He said, I could become a singer or I could become a dancer. So the rabbi said, I think you should become a dancer. He says, why? You have seen me dance? He said, no, but I heard you sing. So today you have multitudes of personality and aptitude tests out there. Anybody here took such tests? You have uh, IQ tests, and you have EQ tests, and you have Mayor Briggs tests, and you have SAT tests, and you have LAST tests. I know somebody who for maybe 30, 40 years, every few months, finds another place to go and find out who they are and what they're good for. For for decades, nonstop. And everybody, of course, has a different interpretation of the self. And there's probably many more that I don't know about, or I don't want to know about. Some of them are more useful than others, but ultimately, they look at a few things. What you enjoy, what comes easy for you, what makes you feel good, what you're good at. Any rational person has to take these things into account before I can decide what my life's mission is. That's one dimension of it. But just like we spoke about the creation of the world, and just like we spoke about Torah mitzvahs, and just like... We speak about all other philosophical questions. It's also true here. And that is the secret behind creation. And the secret behind the mitzvahs is also true when it comes to our lives' journeys. There is what I know and what I understand. And there is that which I will not know. I will not understand. Why? Here I go again with why. 
It's a wrong question. What? What is this all about? The soul is a pulsing, throbbing mass of infinite divine energy. And therefore reason and rationality alone could only get us so far. It can allow us to appreciate certain elements of our lives. But since the soul is a chelik mal, just like it's part of the divine, just like the divine is incomprehensible. And to define the divine as logic is simply not true. Again, it would be wrapping your tongue around the sun. So sometimes in life, we have to understand that our soul's journeys take us to places that we cannot define in terms of logic. I cannot always say, ah, I see logically the pattern. I see why I ended up here because of my nature or because of my character. Sometimes I can see it and then I should see it and study it, but sometimes I really cannot see it. So reason is part of the story. And I should, of course, choose to do something I'm good at, something I'm passionate about, something I can excel in, and fine-tune skills and talents and resources that I have to maximize my opportunities, to fulfill my duties, and to maximize my potential. But to minimize my entire mission to that which I can rationally see, the patterns, the cause, the sequence, the ramifications, that is limiting the truth of the soul. Just like to give the ultimate answer of why the world was created, or what is the significance of this mitzvah or that mitzvah. Try to figure out what you could figure out, follow that pattern, but always be open to the fact that the possibilities are endless, and the mission may be far from comprehension. Some things are reasonable, and some things are beyond reason. Let's speak in a very personal way. Can I answer this question? Can you answer this question? Why have some of us been abused as children? Why have some of us grown up in functional homes and some of us in dysfunctional homes? Is this the fault of the children? And is it even always the fault of the parents who may themselves be victims of previous dysfunctional situations? They themselves are victims of other victims who are victims of other victims and they can all blame it on the original snake who told Chava to eat from the wrong tree. So send the snake into therapy. Why are you sending me into therapy? It's all the snake's fault. Can I explain ultimately why some of us were born into opportunity and some of us were born into destitution? Can we explain why some of us had nurturing families and others not? The word why would be a profane question even to try to answer it. Some of us grew up with mentors who empowered us and some of us grew up with people who abused us. Some of us grew up with people who brought the best out of us and some of us grew up with people who brought out the worst in us. Some of us are still in relationships with people who make us dance and fly and some of us are in relationships with people who make us dead, lifeless, numb and stagnated and paralyzed. Each of us has vices, virtues, blessings, curses, challenges, opportunities. I can always point and say, ah, I get it, this is it. The first thing I have to have is humility. So every morning we speak about three things. Ashreinu matoyv chalkeinu. Umanoyim geiroleinu. Umayafa yirushaseinu. Chalkeinu is my chalik, my part. 
It's the things that I can rationally identify. And this is, this is my portion in the world. Everybody has their corner, their portion. This is what I'm good at. This is what the Rebbeinu Shalom blessed me with. Whatever it may be. These are opportunities I grew up into, or I owned, or I cultivated, or I created. But this is my chalak. Could have I been somebody else? Yeah. I have to be able to embrace what is my portion, what is my lot, what is my destiny. I have my great challenges and I have my great virtues. I have things that come easy for me and I have things that come very difficult for me and I have to work on. I have things that I don't have to struggle with and I have things that I have to struggle with my whole life. I'll never stop struggling. Some people, it comes to food. They don't stop struggling with food a day of their lives. And others don't even understand what you're talking about. It comes to alcohol. Oh. <laughs> Some people don't know what gambling is. They don't have it, and others doesn't stop. The same is true with so many other different, I'm just giving examples. Internet stuff or other issues. Some people don't understand, and some people understand too well. You could see it in their eyes, how well they understand these things. Ashreinu matoiv chalkeinu chalkeinu are those things I can identify, this is my lot. Then there's Yerushaseinu. There's things I inherit. All of us are ultimately products of fathers, mothers, genes that go back generations, 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 and that's part of who I am. I am in many ways my father, I am in many ways my mother, my brothers and sisters, we're all interconnected. There are things that I inherit, and like in every inheritance, there are the great blessings of inheritance, and there are challenges. Ashreinu matoiv chalkeinu, umayafu yerushaseinu. You could look at the ugly things and you could look at the beautiful things. You have to be able to say, But then there's something else. How pleasant is my goyrul? What's a goyrul? Let's say we have two people. And one of the people is going to merit to win. So we throw, we put in the, the tickets and we take out a ticket. We say, you're the winner. Is there a rational connection between you and victory. You won the lottery. There's a reason for it. You can identify patterns. <laughs> you say it's a goyrul. What does a goyrul mean? Goyrul means it's irrational. We call it random. Judaism doesn't call it random. Judaism says it's super rational. It comes from a place that's deeper than the mind figuring it out. Is it connected to you? Of course it's connected to you. It's connected to the core of your soul. To the part of your soul that is divine that is beyond reason. The ability to be able to look at those aspects of my life and say, How pleasant is my goyro? I don't know why. And I can't figure it out. This is not from the things that I figure it out. But I can embrace it with pleasantness. And know that somehow this is part of my journey. Will I understand one day? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe a little bit. Maybe a lot. Maybe all of it. Maybe nothing. Some cipher says, you could see my back, but not my face. He says, in life, you could never see things ahead of you. You can only see things in the rear view mirror. Things you could see make sense in the back. As you say, you come to the end of the book and you say, ah, you look back and you say, ah, now I see. While it's happening, you get upset, you get frustrated, you get annoyed. You have to deal with a different, a different voice in you. I want you to take a look at a few lines. And the Balatanya writes in Tanya, Igeris HaKoyder Simen Zayin. He quotes a Gemara, Shabbos Kuf Yudches. 
Somebody asked Rabbi Yosef, Which mitzvah was your father most careful in? He said, Sitzes. Others said different mitzvahs. The Malatani said, what do you mean with more careful? All, every Jew is obligated to do all the mitzvahs? What type of question? He's more careful than this. He's careful in everything, whatever he can. So he says, Just like every limb has its own individual function, the eye, eye sees and the ear hears. Every mitzvah accesses a special divine infinite energy. And even though every soul ought to observe all the 630 mitzvahs and sometimes comes down again in a Gilgul and a reincarnation to do it, nonetheless, every soul which is like a particular limb has a special, unique, extra connection with more power with this mitzvah because this is connected to its unique journey. This is the meaning of the Gemara. He doesn't say in which mitzvah was he careful. He was careful in all mitzvahs. Which mitzvah was he careful beyond being careful? The unique light that this is that is connected to this individual soul is not something you can always comprehend and wrap your brain around. With reason, with knowledge, with comprehension. It's beyond us. It's rooted in God's thought, which is beyond our mind. Down here we call it Goyro. It looks random. It looks not cohesive. There's no pattern. But why is it that way? Because it's not lower than Das, it's higher than rationality. Now, let's go back to Mordechai and Esther. This is the nature of the conversation between Mordechai and Esther. Mordechai knows that Esther's life is hanging in the balance. He's not impulsively wild, not thinking about consequences. He knows that he asked her to sacrifice her life. And she tells him, this is a life and death question. I could go in and I'm going to die and then you won't have anybody rescued. And now Mordechai has to respond to Esther. How does he respond? First thing he says is, if you're thinking about your own skin, if you're in the selfish mode, it's like let the Jews, whatever, I feel bad, you know. I feel bad, but what should I do? I don't run the Persian Empire. My husband is a lowlife. I'm a Shugana. Haman is a Hitler. What do you want me to do? At least I'll be alive. At least there'll be one Jew alive. One day I'll have a child. There'll be a Yiddish Akind alive. If you're in that mode, Mordechai says, you're not going to be saved. They'll find out you're Jewish. Trust me. And Haman will make sure you die. He's powerful enough. Next day he says, Jews will survive. You will not decide if they live or die. Haman will not decide if they live or die. Their story is beyond you and beyond Haman and beyond me. But you will. You and your father's home will be lost forever. But then, Mordechai comes to his third argument. His third argument seems very weak. It's like, this is the job. You've got to do your job. 
No, thank you. I'm not interested in my job. And Nachmiyadeya, who knows? But Mordechai's Miyadeya is not the regular Miyadeya, like, Vevei, who knows? Maybe yeah, maybe not. It's not an expression of doubt. It's not even a request for information. It's an entire different type of response. You see, Esther has a big question, a troubling question here. And the question Esther has is, ultimately, why me? I was a good Beis Yaakov girl. Great graduate of Beis Yaakov, or Beis Surah, or Beis Rivka, or Beis Ruchel, or Beis Laya, or Beis Chana, whatever it is, whatever Beis it is. Valedictorian. Great, great, great girl. Top of the line. Where do I end up in? I end up in a palace with this man, a non-Jew, a drunk, an alcoholic, unpredictable, inconsistent, a fool, manipulated, horribly insecure. And now you're telling me to go into this man and I might die. And Mordechai turns to her and says, His Mi'aydeya was not, I don't know, I'm uncertain. His Mi'aydeya was, Mi'aydeya, who can have the das? Who can wrap their brain around this reality that I know that this is why you became a queen. But this is not something that you or I could have figured out when we looked at your personality, when we looked at your character, when we studied your future, and when I said, ah, this is where Esther belongs. This is her vocation. This is her ultimate potential. You had a different plan for your life. You wanted to create a beautiful Jewish home, a beautiful Jewish family. Look where you ended up. This is your goyrul. This is from a place that comes from God in His essence deeper than Hashem's intellectual systems. This is from a place in your soul that is rooted in a place beyond your rational conception of figuring out how it goes there, how you ended up there. What did that do for Esther? It allowed Esther... And it brought out from her a commitment that was super rational, that went beyond her trying to figure it out, beyond her trying to make sense. What this allowed, it brought out in Esther her power, her commitment, her koyach of mesiris nefesh, her ultimate unwavering dedication and commitment beyond rationality, beyond logic. And Mordechai says, Mi idea, me is 50, mem and yud. 40 and 10 is 50. Mi idea. The Gemara says in Rosh Hashanah that there are 49 gates of knowledge that were given to Moshe besides number 50. Number 50 is beyond 49. Mi idea. Mi shar hanun. The das here comes from the 50th gate, which completely comes beyond rationality. So when Esther asks a question, why did I end up here? How does a Jewish girl end up here? Mardechai says, I cannot explain logically why a beautiful Yiddish maidel, a beautiful Yiddish girl, ends up with a drunk, moronic, intoxicated monarch. 
Why does Esther deserve this? Why from all Jewish women did you end up in this? Why do you have to go through this dilemma? Mardechai says this is beyond Das, it's beyond human knowledge. It's the ultimate secret of a soul's mission in this world that is often inexplicable. Sometimes you look at somebody's life and all you could say is, Mi idea. And in many ways that is the most comforting and truthful thing you could say to them. Don't rationalize. Don't justify. Don't minimize. And don't try to make believe, eh, it's just, it's wonderful. It works, it's perfect. I have to be able to look you in your eyes and say, Mi idea. This is from a place that I cannot define, I can't articulate, I will not minimize, I will not rationalize. It's rooted in God's essence, beyond reason, beyond logic. The soul's journey, essentially, is often a transcendent journey. An inexplicable journey. There's Chelkeinu, there's Yerushaseinu, but then there's also Goyraleinu. I don't know. I don't know about me. Maybe one day I will. I don't know about you. It's certain elements of me, Yoidea. So Esther herself now, may have legitimate reasons to hesitate. Very good reasons. Logical reasons. Esther's a logical girl, that's for sure. She's a brilliant girl. Yes, she may be killed. Not only that, halachically there was a problem here. The Gemara says in Masech Megillah, the Kasher Avadati Avadati, till now she was being forced into a relationship. Now it was the first time she would enter into intimacy by will. First time. Not Bo'inez, Birotzen. Because that's the way to please Achashverosh. So the Gemara says in Megillah, this is the first time Esther voluntarily surrenders her holy body to Achashverosh. And the consequences for that, halachically, are very profound in terms of going back to another Jewish marriage after she does that. So halachically, there's also a lot of problems. This is the first time she would offer her body to the king. But when she heard Mordechai's words, Mi idea. She was inspired to act in a way that reached deeper than her own das. She took the plunge. Mardechai wasn't being uncertain. Mardechai was being unwavering. Mardechai was being as decisive and as clear and as articulate as possible. Mardechai was saying, this is your ultimate journey. Why this is your journey is a secret. It's a secret to me. Probably a secret to you. It's me idea. Because there are parts in my life that as much I will, as I will try, I will not be able to figure out the connection and draw the lines. I can't. Now take a look at Yom Kippur. You have two goats. And the two goats are twins. They're not only Two goats that look alike. Same mother. Same father. Identical. That's what the Sfasemis tells us. Even if you don't want to go with that, there are two goats that are identical. Where do they end up? One goat ends up in the Holy of Holies. Where does the other goat end up? Down a cliff, Azazel, carrying all the black sins the scapegoat that carries all the sins. You look at two goats, you look at two people. One ends up La Hashem in the Holy of Holies. And one ends up La Zazel on a cliff. 
And as the Gemara says in Yuma, the Mishnah says in Yuma, sometimes in the middle of the mountain it's already disintegrated into many bones. Fragmentation, brokenness. You say, why did this goat end up in the Kodesh HaKadoshim and this goat ended up here? Why? Say, I'll tell you why. This goat grew up in a normal house. And this goat grew up in a Meshuggah house. This goat's father was an Elichayit, a loving person, a tender loving father, spent time with his children, was a nurturer, was honest, was ethical. This one grew up with a mother. Ah! And this one grew up with a tata, tzedreite mama. And fur, of course. So the Mishnah says, no, no, no. The mitzvahs, they should be identical. They look the same. They were given the same countenance, the same light. They were nurtured to the same heights. Ubedamim! They both gave their blood for both of them. And they both spent the same money for both of them. If he needed therapy, he also got therapy. If he needed karate, he also got karate. If he needed baseball, he also got baseball. He needed a tutor, he also got a tutor. He needed a ski trip, he also got a ski trip. He needed this, he also got this. And the Svasemis Nach says they're twins. So it's not like you could say, here the father was 32 years old, he was a clueless moron, and now finally he's 46, he got to his sense, he became normal. No, they're twins, the same mother, the same father, all the shtick that he had, he had, or she had. So now my question is, if that's the case, why does this goat end up in the Holy of Holies, and this goat ends up in Azazel? And what's the answer to that? Goyrel. It's a goyrel. Mi idea. I don't know. I don't know the journey of souls. Some things I know, but much more of what I know, I don't know. Some things I know about my soul, some things I can know about your soul, and I can know about my children's souls. And some things I don't. And it doesn't mean I don't know it, and therefore I run from it, I detach from it. It means I open myself up to a relationship with this journey from a place that is deeper than my own comfort zone, my own logical patterns and systems. I have to be able to say, This is somehow the journey of your soul, of my soul. There's a pleasantness to it. There's a profound beauty to it, even though I ask myself, how did I end up in Achashverosh's palace? A woman came over to me once before Purim, after a class. And she said, I don't know why people celebrate Purim. I said, what's bothering you? The Shalach it's true, for some people, Purim became a miserable holiday because they have to prepare 250 Shalach And each Shalach has to be nicer than the other to impress a neighbor they don't care about. The mitzvah of Shalach is to give two gifts to one friend. Take an orange and a hamantash and give it to your friend. <laughs> you did Shalach You want to give more Shalach Give. Give more Matanus Levyoinim, the Rambam says. Give more Tzedakah. People make themselves miserable on Purim. It's supposed to be the happiest day. They're intense already. Three weeks before Purim is coming, the most miserable day of the year. Okay, that's our choice. She says, no, that's not the reason. You know why I don't celebrate Purim? Because I always think about the tragedy of Esther. I say, what do you mean? She says, the Jews won. They went to eat. They went to drink. They went to party. And what happened to her? Where was she? 
I said, she was in the palace. She remained with them. She never left. She never came back to her people. She never built a Jewish family. She never came to a bar mitzvah or a wedding. She never dressed up her own. She never, what did she have? She had this crazy monarch as a husband that she stuck with. What a tragic story. Why does nobody think about Esther? I told her, I said, Rebetzin, point well taken. Made me think. I said, but I'm going to ask you a question. If the year is 1938, and you're living in Berlin, and you know that you could enter into a relationship with a Yemach Shemoynik from the Nazi Third Reich, you can enter into a relationship with them, with this person, with this man. And as a result of that, none of the six million Jews would be killed. But that's where you would be. Would you celebrate your life or would you curse your life? Every day when you wake up and you look in the mirror, you know that six million Jews were saved. And the tool through which they were saved was your sacrifice. Would you look at yourself as a nebuchadnezzar victim? Or would you say, ah, tell me the truth. Would you say thanks for this opportunity? Or you would say, why can't I be like everybody else? And she said, I would say thank you for the opportunity. I said, that's what Esther said every day. Every Jew was saved because of her. And then it would have been like the Holocaust and it would have been every Jew. And she was the tool through which they were saved. Esther did not look at herself as a Nebuchadnezzar victim. Did she understand why her and not somebody else? I don't think so. Mordechai said, Mi This is Goyro. Ovech b'may have a zoyer it's your oil, your light, your connection to the Ain Saif. It's not my connection. Every person was born in a different place, born to different parents, given different challenges, experienced different experiences, and some of them very painful ones. I don't know why, but I do know that I have the power to say, I will open myself up to it with every fiber of my being, and I won't have to limit myself to make sense out of it. Because then I actually paralyze my journey rather than open myself up to a journey. And indeed, this whole story we're describing, the Medrash brings out in Parshish Kisisa Yalkut Shemayni in a very fascinating story. Everybody knows the story. Elio Anovi is confronted with a situation that most Jews are worshipping the Nevi'e Habal, the prophets of the Baal. So what does Elio Anavi do? He tells the Jews, Malachim Aleph Yud Zion, Kings 117. How long are you going to dance on two chasanas, as we say? You can't sit on the fence. If God is God, go to God. If the Baal is the Baal, go to the Baal. What does Elio do? The Medrash says, the, the Apostolic says, the Navi says, he takes two bulls and he tells the prophets of the Baal, take a bull and I'll take a bull. And we'll both offer it to our God. You will offer it to your God. None of us will create a fire. None of us will create wood where the fire could burn. And then let's see which God will burn up the fat of this animal and accept it as an offering. So we know the story. He gives them the bull. He takes the bull. They slaughter the bull. They put it on their altar. And they try to do everything. No fire. And then Elio, one of comes. Aneni, Hashem, Aneni. And the fire consumes the flesh of his bull, and the whole nation screams out, Hashem Hu Elikim, Hashem Hu Elikim. 
So the Medrash says on this story, first it says that Elio Anavi told them, choose a bull, and I'll take a bull. The end of the story, it says he took the bull and he gave it to them. So the Medrash says Elio Anavi had two bulls, two parim, two shayr. And the second, first bull that he said, go over to them, and they were about to take it. That's what the Medrash says. The bull opened its mouth. It's a famous Shutar Adbaz. Adbaz says, what does it mean the bull opened its mouth? doesn't necessarily mean physically. It could mean the mazel of the bull, the koyach of the bull, the energy of the bull. Okay, it's a separate issue. And the bull turns to Leo Anavi and he says, these words, me and my chaver, me and the other bull are twins. We both came out from the same mother. Two calves came from the same womb at the same time, from the same parents. Grew up in the same avus, in the same uh, in the same barn, and ate from the same. Uh, what's the word? Trough. Lived in the same corral. Were educated by the same parents. And he, you're sending to God, and me, you're sending lahachis is boiri to get my creator angry. It's not fair. So Leo Anovi says, my entire behemala. My dear Behemala, Kishem Sheshem Shemayim Iskadish al Yodai Kachem Shemayim Iskadish al Yodh. Just like the name of God will be sanctified through him, the name of God will be sanctified through you. But the bull still didn't want to go. So Leo Anavi took it and he gave it over. And that's why the change of the text of the story. This is the Madrash. I ask you a question. This Behema obviously had Seichel. It had a conversation with Elio Anavi. What was his initial thought? What was this thought at the end? Initially, he said, it's not fear. He's going to God, and I'm going to make God angry. Elio Anavi says, you're not making God angry. On the contrary, God is being sanctified through you. Because you will go, you will be slaughtered, you will not be consumed. This will demonstrate the futility of the prophets of the Baal. That's what Elio says. What did the, what did the cow think in the beginning? What was the Kiddush of Elio Anavi to the cow, to the bull? And also the bull keeps on saying, he says, my friend is going here and I'm going there. What do you care about where your friend is going, where your brother is going? What is this, jealousy? Or the issue is you don't want to make God angry. The meaning, of course, is much profounder. The bull was saying something very deep. The bull knew that it's going to make a Kiddush Hashem. The bull knew that it's going to disprove Avedi Zara. But the bull was asking a question. There's something unjust. We're twins. He ends up as a carbon. And I end up as Avedi Zara. It's true, I'm going to disprove them. I'm going to show that their God is futile because I'm not being burnt. But why is it that I end up as a gechke, as in something being slaughtered to the idols. And he ends up as for, for, for holiness. We're twins. We had the same education. What does Elio Anovi answer? In the Yeshiva Shevelt they know, whenever the Rambam says, it's not a comparison. It's the same gather. He could have said this and this. It's just the same. It's the same chefze. It's the same definition. It's the same chalois. 
The same Kedusha Hashem that comes from him comes from you. Don't compare, don't, don't, don't think it's different. There's different journeys. He will sanctify God through sanctifying God by going up in the flames. And you will sanctify God by going into the place of Avodah and demonstrating its futility. And it's the same Kedusha. It's not a compromise. It's not a horrible thing. It's not that your destiny is Nebuch. You're a loser. You're not a loser. You have a different journey, but it's the shame. Kedusha's a shame. Different people end up in different places. Twins. Two goats. Twins. Lashem Lazazel. And we say, why am I dealing with this? Why is my brother not dealing with this? That's fear. Miyodeya. Not only that, the Medrash says Eliyahu threw lots. It was a girdle there too. But the bull still didn't want to go. You know why the bull didn't want to go? Because if the bull would go on its own, maybe you could say, ah, maybe it really belongs there. Eliyahu Anavi took the bull and put it there. In other words, this was just another shlichus of Eliyahu Anavi. It was just part of the mission. It wasn't independent, it wasn't separate. And I think this is true in each one of our lives. We try to choose lives, marriages, children, vocations, careers that we enjoy, that make sense, and it's important. But sometimes the ultimate purpose of my life lay in an experience, a job, an opportunity, an encounter, a journey, and a search that I could never anticipate. I could never know how and why I ended up here. I could have never planned it. I could have never imagined it. If you would have asked Esther as a girl, what is the likelihood that she would become the husband of Ahasuerus, the queen and the first lady of the Persian Empire and save the entire Jewish world, she would say, you are insane. And even meds will not help you. So what Mordechai is teaching us here is never run away from opportunity. Never dismiss a moment that falls into your lap. There is a soul that only you can save. There is a heart that you can there is a heart that only you can mend. And there is a spirit that only you can uplift. There is a situation that only you can fix. And sometimes it's in the explicable and bizarre moments that your soul thrives. The Balshemtiv said. A soul comes down for 70, 80 years to do one favor to one Jew materially and certainly spiritually. Imagine a person lives for 80 years, 90 years, 120 years. They do many mitzvahs. They learn a lot of Torah. The Baal Shem Tov says the ultimate story of your life is the one deed that trumps them all. The one deed that ultimately gives them all their ultimate significance and validity. The one gesture that benefits my soul more than anything else. It's the ultimate reason I came into the world. And sometimes I could never ever anticipate that. Sometimes I could never look forward to it. Sometimes I could never understand why me and how me. And here I have to be able to look at my journeys and say some of it is Yodeya and some of it is me Yodeya. And those I have to embrace with the same core commitment and even more than everything else. Yes, I don't imagine it, I don't prepare for it. I prepare my chalek and I embrace my Yerusha. 
but God prepares my goiro. And I look at it and I say, Manoyim goiro Some of us have an opportunity to be the bull that spends time in the Holy of Holies. Or to be the bull of Elio Anavi, the goat that spends time in the Holy of Holies. Or the bull of Elio Anavi that is considered holy. But some of us are given the opportunity or the mission, and each of us in our generation, to be able to deal with those who are completely in a very different realm. And some people say, why should I waste my time dealing with prophets of Baal? What do I go there for? Why not remain in the Holy of Holies? And Elio Anavi says... Don't run away from those opportunities to be able to go into darker and more difficult and challenging places and reveal the holiness that's there. This message is so central to Purim because it's how Mordechai got Esther to do what she did. When Esther heard Mioidea, it changed her whole paradigm. She opened herself up to it and it brought out her infinite potential. Once her infinite potential came out, she was a different person. When she was a different person, her mindset was different. She got it done. And that's why when we had to choose a name for the Yom Tif, the name is Purim. Al Shem HaPur Hu It's not just Haman's Pur. Then it would be called Purim. It's not just Haman's lot. Purim plural means there's another lot going on. Haman cast his lot. But Mordechai cast his lot. And Esther cast her lot. When she heard, This is in the Pchina of Goyrul. It's beyond us. Esther said, if this is my Goyrul, it must bring out something in me that is beyond my Das. And that's why on Purim we're instructed to drink. Adeloyada. Who makes such a mitzvah? Chaya vinish lepsumah bepurim. Adeloyada ben Aramon legemarim megillah dav zayin. You're supposed to drink on Purim until you don't know between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mardukah. So some people interpret it: you have to get so smashed and intoxicated that you don't know what hit you, and the women suffer plenty from that. Yeah. That's why they also don't like Purim, right? But the truth is, it's, very, it's a very deep idea. Purim is not that you get drunk and you're so drunk you don't know what hit you. That's a very superficial and uh, meaningless definition of Purim. Purim means you have the courage to embrace life's mission. By having the acute confidence and courage to be able to transcend your own logical patterns and structures, to be able to say, this is what I fit into, this is what I don't fit into, this is what makes me happy, this makes me miserable, this is me and this is destructive of my life. Until you don't know, you go to a place of, it's beyond my das. And then, even though there are things in life that you want to say, this is cursed, and this is blessed, this is from Haman, and this is from Mordechai, this is the life that I like, 
and this is the life that I hate. This is the part of life that I embrace, and this is the part of life that's cursed and disgusting and abominable, and get it out of me. This is half of my personality and my psyche and my background and my system and my this and my that. Get it out of me. But Esther had the courage to be able to appreciate, no, if this is your life, this is part of the secret journey of your soul, this is connected to your essence, and your essence is deeper than your das, and therefore you could reach a space of to be able to embrace all of yourself and all aspects of your life with serenity, with wholesomeness, with determination and with joy. Have a wonderful week on Afrelech and Chaydesh Adam. We didn't get to that. Is there? Is this the same? No. Because sometimes you have a guy in Lashon Kaidish. You have a guy in Lashon Kaidish. It looks holy. Poor means that it looks Persian. It doesn't even look holy. Yeah. The same Hashem's name is not in the Megillah. You don't see Hashem's name there. Thank you for coming. You were here before. Why was it in Persian? So why is it poor and not Goril? Because Goril is Lashon Kaidish. Lashon Kaidish is a holy language. Purim is a Persian. Pur. The demonstration is, the point is that sometimes it doesn't even look like there's any holiness here. There's no Kedusha. Not only is it a lot in Lashon Kaidish, it's a lot in Persian. That's why Hashem's name is not mentioned in the Megillah. It's even more concealed, yeah. Sure, Hatzlochel. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.